Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Susan Carlyle about her biography of the 18th century British author Charlotte Lennox, entitled Charlotte Lennox, An Independent Mind. Susan, welcome to the show. Hello. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I uh, began this project 20 years ago. And uh, many find that to be quite a long time to be working on one project. But uh, I was living in Madrid uh, in the late, uh, well, I, I left in 1992. I lived there for three years. And I became really interested in how Spain influenced England. And um, when I went into grad school a couple of years later, I, or two years later, I decided that I wanted to discover if there was an author who perhaps, an English author who had been influenced by a Spanish author. I was limited to taking English literature because I was a high school teacher at the time. And I needed to take night classes. And the Spanish lit department did not have night classes. So this is sort of a roundabout way of me finding the author of the female Quixote, or Quixote, we pronounce it both ways. Uh, who is Charlotte Lennox. And I got very interested in how this woman author in the 18th century had found the female Quixote, had found Don Quixote Cervantes and thus wrote a parody of Don Quixote, the female Quixote. And that led me down a road of trying to find out about her. And so this is when I was in graduate school and I was really encouraged by an advisor who worked on Samuel Johnson, who was a close friend of Charlotte Lennox. And this advisor suggested that I continue my work uh, for my dissertation. And so that's how I got uh, got on the path of gathering information about Charlotte Lennox's life. Um, there's, it was difficult because there was not a lot of material. Uh, luckily, in the late 70s, there was a cache of letters that was discovered in a bank vault in Edinburgh. And those letters are the bulk of the correspondence we have uh, to and from Lennox. And we now have uh, more letters, and those were published a few years ago. Um, <laughs> another aspect of the, of the personal story is that I met my husband, husband because of Charlotte Lennox. He was also a graduate student at Duke University. I was at Arizona State. And he uh, was working on the letters of Charlotte Lennox in his graduate work. And I was working on, <laughs> on the biography of Charlotte Lennox. <laughs> and he ended up um, eventually publishing the letters of Charlotte Lennox, correspondence of Charlotte Lennox. Oh, has it been five years now? And so we've had a great uh, collaboration on, you know, piecing together material about her. But I've always been the one that was interested in telling the story, and he's been um, collecting the letters and taking the notes. So 
that is a, a great, it's been a great thing because we've now been able to really bring a lot more attention to Linux studies. In fact, we can call it Linux studies now. So, yeah, at the beginning, I was a high school teacher working on this, as you know, in the nights and on the weekends. And uh, over time, I was lucky enough to get a tenure track job. And then I was able to work on it slightly more. Uh, but it was, it's been a really long process because of the, de- the amount of detail that I was having to collect and going to libraries in you know, England and in Wales and around the United States and Canada. So collecting material was took a long time and organizing into a narrative was quite a challenge. <laughs> One of the things that I thought was really fascinating about your book is that it's not just the life of Charlotte Lennox, that you situate her in the context of her times, that she's not just a woman uh, writing novels, that she's living in this 18th century world, and how you draw so many fascinating details about that world to help us better understand who she was and the life she led as an author in, in a way that really helps to provide a lot of color and fill in a lot of the gaps that are missing from uh, the course from, that might be missing from the correspondence. Well, I'm glad that that uh, that came across to you in that way. I was it was a challenge because you know Lennox is not a person of means who had maybe you know a family with money to keep her papers and to preserve her legacy. So much of her correspondence and you know any original manuscripts have been destroyed or lost or you know over the course of time so it is it has been a real challenge to figure out how to do a re- responsible biography about her but i felt like it was really important to work with what we had both the 18 works that she wrote and the correspondence which of i guess maybe around 80 80 letters that are not particularly detailed about her personal life, but more about her career as an author and working within the literary marketplace. So I thought it was really important to figure out a way to do it so that we could um, really access her career, a little of her personal life, and then the larger milieu that she was working in became an important way to fill out her story and provide readers with yeah, an experience of her of her life and of what it would be like, what it might have been like to be a woman author trying to protect her reputation and make some money because she really needed to make money. So I'm that, really glad that it worked, that came across. Oh, it definitely did. I was thinking that that problem that we have in terms of knowing the details about her life it also extends to uh, her family as well. And I was wondering if you could start us off by talking a bit about her uh, family background, uh, who were the Ramses, and, and how did their experiences shape uh, Charlotte's childhood and then through that, her literature? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's her, her early life is quite interesting. Her mother was Irish, her father was Scottish. And her father was working for the English military. So he was, uh, worked as a, he was a soldier and beginning to rise in the ranks, uh, probably because of his service in Gibraltar, where we think Lennox was born. 
And then we kind of lose track of her for a little bit, but her family around when she was about nine years old, her family moved to America because her father was positioned as was placed as the Colonel of the forts at Albany and Schenectady and maybe Fort Frederick as well, which was the, uh, fort that was designed to preserve the alliance of the Iroquois, the five nations. So as a young person between the ages of nine and 12, she lived in, in Albany, pro- probably in Albany, but also had familiarity and probably traveled to Schenectady and up into Canada. Uh, and she was the daughter of, you know, she had two, a, a brother and a sister for sure, both older than her. And that experience in America made a huge mark on her. We know that because her first and last novels are set, at least part of the narrative is set in America. So America is a really important aspect, I think, to thinking about Lennox because, you know, those, those, the, those impressionable ages of, of 9 to 12 uh, meant that she had a different perspective on cross-cultural experiences. You know, in, in uh, Albany, there, the Dutch were the primary European presence. Of course, there were also French and, of course, the English. And then, uh, then there were um, Native Americans, Mohawks and Hurons, she writes about in her, in her own texts. Uh, there were Blacks as well. So she had a very interesting you know, early life. And I think that really formed her when she came back to England around the age of 13. Uh, Her father died around that age. We don't know for sure if he died before or after she came to America, but she came alone to America, possibly because her family thought that she would get a better formation and be able to be married off if she were in England. Uh, education maybe isn't the right word, but a formation to be able to be married. Uh, and she was the plan was for her to live with an aunt in Essex. When she arrived in London, uh, and she was with a female companion, we don't know exactly who that was. Her aunt was, had just experienced the death of her own son and was not able to care for Charlotte. And we don't know exactly the circumstances, but somehow she was. Had, had distinguished herself as a young poet at the age of 13, uh, a, you know, a remarkable skill. And she ended up uh, under the guardianship of Lady Isabella Finch, who's the first lady of the Ben Chaber to Princess Amelia and Carolina, and to also a guardian of Lady Mary, the Marchioness of Rockingham. So these are women in the court. Um, Lady Isabella Finch lived at Berkeley Square and had a a library. She was the only woman at court with a library. And Lady Mary lived at Grosvenor Square, and she probably had Charlotte living in her home uh, in these, you know, between the ages of about 13 and, and maybe all the way to 18. But we don't know for sure how long. But these women had a lot of, and obviously connections in the court and Charlotte, we don't know the exact role she played or, you know, how much this was about her being, 
a sharp young woman who had an interesting mind that these women appreciated. We know Lady Isabella Finch really had an artistic bent and uh, would have had uh, inclinations to support a young woman uh, like Charlotte. Uh, though we don't have a lot of material to go on, we know that they were connected. So Charlotte was, uh, you know, in that world until uh, we know that at the age of 17, she was an actress uh, in at least one play, The Fair Penitent. She uh, starred as Lavinia. And that's the main protect. Oh, no, then again, uh, she was uh, starring in another role in 1748, so when she was 18, and again at 19. So she had this, um, uh, you know, I don't know if we probably can't call it a career, but she was known in the theater. That doesn't really jive with being in the court. So it seems that there's a separation uh, in uh, at the age of 18, she published her poems. So that was the first publication. And she dedicated those poems to Lady Isabella Finch. Whether that marks, it seems to have marked both uh, an appreciation of Finch for helping her. And uh, the dedication seems to indicate that. But it also seems to mark a moment where she seems to separate from that world. And she marries a man who... Uh, had some aristocratic connections, but does not seem to have been mm, as well connected or as wealthy as she probably had hoped. <laughs> <laughs> that man, Alex Lennox, Alexander Lennox, was also seemed to be possibly involved with the print industry, with Samuel Johnson, perhaps, or with William Strawn, who was a, a printer. So he, he, Alexander Lennox is, is a fascinating figure in this whole story because, uh, you know, it seems like he was in some ways helpful to her. He probably, or we definitely have evidence of him as her amanuensis at certain points, as her literary advocate, helping her find tutors for Italian. But he also does not seem to have been able to earn an income. We don't have a lot of evidence of him earning an income in those early years. And she was the breadwinner of this, of their, you know, in their partnership. Uh, he seems to maybe have been a spendthrift. Maybe he got to, you know, involved in ways that, uh, you know, his reputation was never, you know, um, considered really impressive. Uh, so she, you know, there are letters between them in which we can see some affection. And there's also letters between them in which we can see there uh, that she is very angry with him. <laughs> uh, but they do stay together for a long time, and it, it probably protected her reputation to be married rather than a single woman in London on her own. That would have been uh, probably more challenging for her in terms of her literary career. And also gave her a chance to move through the streets of London a little bit more easily as a married woman. You, you mentioned. So, I was going to say yeah. you, you mentioned a couple of, of, of points about her life up until now, which is that she uh, was gaining some early renown for some of her compositions. That she's in need of an income. Uh, that she turns to writing, and uh, I was wondering if you could maybe uh, take a step back a bit and explain why uh, someone like her might turn to writing? Was it a uh, 
profession that had a degree of respectability? Was it a profession at which she could easily earn an income? What was it that basically uh, drew her to writing, not just as an occupation, but as a source of income? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And what we know in the middle of the 18th century in London is that authorship was just becoming professionalized. So it's the industry, it's becoming an industry rather than authors, you know, as being patronized by wealthy people. Uh, Samuel Johnson is an excellent, you know, example of this, a friend of Lennox's. He preferred not to have patronage, but to earn his own income. But he also struggled uh, in the, in his early, in the early years of his career, which coincide really with Lennox's. She was a little bit younger than him, uh, but she was also pursuing this path of of authorship with the idea that she could earn some money. Uh, no one was, well, very few people were getting rich on, on writing, but many did think it was a path for some income. And in Lennox's case, she loved writing and she loved books. And this was also a passion, passion for her. So, was it the best way to earn an income? Well, there weren't really that many options for women. Uh, she probably at some points was a tutor. Uh, she also could have become a female companion, but she writes about the, the arduous nature of being a female companion in her novels. So we can see that that's not uh, an independent life like she, I think, was trying to create. Uh, so that, but it it means that she never was comfortable. I think we accounted 26 different addresses she lived in while she was, you know, during her lifetime in London. She lived in London rather than anywhere else, and probably to stay close to the publishing industry, uh, though it would have been a little more expensive than living oh outside though you know she was also not going to be able to live in in the country on a country estate or something like that so she they were living hand to mouth they seemed at some point to be they possibly were leaving addresses because they were running from creditors um so i does that answer your question about you know why oh it, and it, it, it does yeah and, and now having set that context i was wondering if you could perhaps explain a bit about what it was she was writing in these early years and and what uh, mm-hmm. what was what was the focus of her compositions and 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 what did they say about her development as an author at that stage? Mm-hmm. So in 1747, when she was 18, she published poems on several occasions. That was her. So that the the genre of poetry was her first foray foray as a public author. Uh, what we know about authorship in this period is poets really weren't making much of an income. Uh, poetry was a hard genre to break into in a, in a successful way, especially as a woman. Even today, there were many poets, women poets who were publishing in magazines and other places, and you could have earned a little income from publishing in magazines. A little, maybe. <laughs> uh, but we that people are still today not studying these women who were publishing. Uh, the poetry was considered a... a you know, a high genre, more elite genre. What she had a better chance of publishing in and making an income were novels, which was just a growing uh, genre in the the 18th century. And so she 
moved into the genre of novels. So by 1750, she was publishing, you know, this would have been, she would have been about 21. She published um, The Life of Harriet Stewart, which, as I mentioned, was set in, a part of it was set in America. She was writing about young women who were trying to establish them a way of being independent in a society in which their parents and specifically their fathers and sometimes their brothers were usually able to control or at least have a large say in their futures. So marriage was necessary, as we know from Jane Austen, who loved Charlotte Lennox, by the way, <laughs> uh, and more people are more probably more familiar with Jane Austen, but those kinds those plots are, um, Austen's plots were influenced by the, the tradition in the 18th century of the marriage plot, where we see what young women trying to find ways to have agency in a society where they weren't allowed to have their own money, to uh, be, you know, sign contracts, to have really, you know, any kind of real agency. So women had to figure out ways to marry uh, that would be as <laughs> supportive as po- environments that would be as supportive as possible. So we see Lennox writing novels that have young women uh, in the you know in the times when they're courting and trying to find men who will um, will appreciate their minds and will appreciate most of her characters her her female characters are readers and writers and they are looking for spouses that yes they are attracted to and and love but also want to talk to them <laughs> and find them interesting. So that is, that's really important to her, to the, you know, we see that pattern in her novels. The Female Quixote was published in 1752. So that was just, you know, her next novel after uh, The Life of Harriet Stewart. And, and because Don Quixote was, had been translated into English uh, in these decades, people were interested in that plot. So it was an incredibly smart move for her to write a parody about a young woman who read too many novels. In this case, she was reading French romances. The, the, in the, the library that her mother had um, created and her mother had died. And so she is reading these, these French romances and thinking, well, this is how life should be. So the female Quixote is especially funny because she has created a, a world in her mind <laughs> based on these <laughs> these French romances and her, the, the men who come to court her are functioning, you know, in a, a way that is more acceptable in the 1750s in London. And she is expecting them to be willing to die for her and expecting them <laughs> to behave in really courtly ways that show their real sincere love for her. And they don't, know how to do that and it's it's wonderful because she's a beautiful debater and she you know is continually asking the question well what is truth why is the custom today the right way for me to determine who's a good spouse and why isn't why aren't these 
not these French romances, a better guide for me to find the right person. So it's really funny. I like to call Charlotte Lennox the Tina Fey of London 250 years ago because she creates these hilarious scenarios in which uh, she, she though sounding a little bit, um, you know, incredibly unconventional, (laughs) she still sounds lovable and believable and worthy of uh, attention and many, uh, and in the case of this character, Arabella and the female Quixote, people are impressed with her ability to discuss history, to discuss cultural values, and even questions of relativity. Why? Why this cultural idea versus another cultural idea? That's her early career. uh, You you mentioned that that, that people were impressed by this discussion. How successful were these early novels, and how did they shape this uh, early stage of her career in terms of its development as a career? Mm -hmm. So The Female Quixote was extremely successful. It went through uh, I wish I had the number, but, you know, maybe up to 20 editions in her lifetime and uh, continued to be republished after her death. So, and, and everything, every, all of her works after that, she, uh, on the title page, it would say by the author of the female Quixote. So she created a brand and uh, that novel really set her career in motion. She was probably emboldened by that uh, success and soon after published uh, a text called Shakespeare Illustrated, which uh, that text highlights that she was not just a novelist, but she was also an intellectual and a scholar because The Female Quixote um, is a three-volume work that um, features 20 of Shakespeare's plays and shows the uh, original plots that Shakespeare took to write each of these plays. So she did a tremendous amount of research for, for these three volumes. The first volume, for example, is 300 pages long. And she had uh, done the research, probably with some help from Samuel Johnson. He was already interested in working on Shakespeare, but had not published his famous Shakespeare, which was published in 1765. Lennox's published in 1753-54, set uh, questions in the minds of readers about what do we consider literary genius? Is a literary genius, can a literary genius, can an English literary genius be someone who has taken plots from other authors. Now, imitation was still the highest form of compliment in this period, but originality was starting to, that quality of originality was starting to become um, highly valued. And Lennox, as an author, as an actress, especially appreciated the, the skill necessary to write your own plot. So she was she was critical of Shakespeare in these in Shakespeare Illustrated, uh, and asked repeatedly, "How can a, uh, an author who takes plots and even turns the plots into something less valuable?" <laughs> she was especially critical of the way Shakespeare treated women in his plays, and pointed out that sometimes 
he made it less real. He made their lives less realistic than the original plot had. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a really interesting aspect of her life because she became known as a critic of Shakespeare, which was not a particularly wise uh, strict, uh, or strategic move in the marketplace because Shakespeare was rising in status. People were going to see Shakespeare plays in droves. I think uh, Arthur Murphy says, with us Islanders, Shakespeare is a kind of established religion. <laughs> <laughs> One in six theatrical performances during this time, between 1701 and 1750, was a play by Shakespeare. So for her to be criticizing Shakespeare <laughs> in this moment is both clever, but but turned out to be maybe not the wisest move because people were looking for, and their, England was looking for their own national literary hero, and Shakespeare was being chosen at this time. And so people were, David Garrick, a very famous theater manager, was promoting Shakespeare and creating the hype around Shakespeare that has made him still today the iconic English author. And so for her to be critical was problematic. Interestingly, though, Samuel Johnson, when he published his 1765 Shakespeare, references Lennox's research and in some cases gives her credit, in many cases does not. But he dodges the question of originality, mostly probably because he was feeling pressure to be a promoter of Shakespeare. And so he doesn't uh, highlight so much the criticisms that Lennox has has leveled against Shakespeare. Still, Shakespeare Illustrated is being quoted into the 19th century, and in fact, in the 20th century, she is still known as one of the as the early critic of Shakespeare, the the first. Um, yeah, so it's that part of her life is super interesting as well. It, it, it interested me as well on a lot of levels, and and for me you know, being introduced to uh, Lennox's work in this biography, it was just impressive how uh, the range of it, how you've described, you're talking about a woman who at this point is in her mid-20s, and she's already published yeah. poetry, she's published two novels which are well-received, she's published a work of criticism that is somewhat controversial, and yet is still widely accepted and, and, and consulted, and she's also publishing translations. She has this fascinating right. range and and you don't have quite the 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 need for the uh, the scholarly equipment uh, back then that you do today for such a thing, but that that she's doing this over such a a, a vast uh, scope of, of of literary contributions, and how they're they're just really demonstrating just the 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 range of her abilities as an author as a a, a scholar during this time. Yeah, it it is really remarkable. We haven't even started to talk about her you know, learning French as a young woman, which would have been difficult uh, in the colonies in Albany, for example. But, you know, in Lady Isabella Finch's library and through those courtly connections, that's probably how she learned French. She also, uh, we have evidence she learned Latin. And then um, in order to do Shakespeare Illustrated, she found, well, her husband helped her find an Italian tutor and she learned Italian through, um, Beretti, Franco Beretti. And so she, she was a, a impressive language learner that uh, used her, those, these, these skills to produce these intellectual works, right? So her French translations are also another really interesting aspect to her, to her career because she brought to, to 
England, many texts that wouldn't have been accessible to English readers uh, if they did not read French. So that's another thing that I find really interesting about her, that she contributed to granting access to a wider readership, this intellectual material that only those who had gotten an education in French could have been reading. For example, she translated the Greek theater of Father Brumway uh, in 1759, which was, she included, she she enlisted a few other um, male authors to help her with that, but she was sort of the general editor and also translated many of these many of the sections of Greek theater of Father Brumway, but she brought several Greek plays to into English for the first time. So that's another, you know, interesting element of her, her ability to grant access to readers. We haven't started talking about magazines yet, but we could get to that too. <laughs> well, I was wondering before we did, if we could maybe move a bit uh-huh. away from uh, her literary output and talk a bit about uh-huh. her, uh, what we know about her, her personal life at this point, because you, you don't just talk about her as an author. You talk about her as a uh, participant in uh, in London society in the 1750s. You talk about her uh, friendships with other literary figures. You, you open the book with the, the, this, this wonderful uh, 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 story about how she's about to meet Samuel Richardson for the first time and how she's going, how the idea was introduced, had, had her introduced by, by Samuel Johnson, who at this point is already her friend. Uh, I was wondering if you could explain a bit about some of those literary connections she was making and, and what they say about her and, and, and what they were saying about her career at that point. Yes, yes, that is really interesting. She was so successful at meeting the important literary figures of the day, especially those who were professional authors. So Samuel Johnson is a really important person for her. And she met him when she was young, probably 16, even 17. And he was a great supporter of her work and thought her to be an excellent writer and an interesting person. They have these great um, letters back and forth in which we see them challenging each other, disagreeing with each other, and also appreciating each other. And he and he, they together were really interested in Shakespeare, so they must have had lots of conversations about Shakespeare. Johnson probably helped introduce her to other authors, but what we know is that Henry Fielding and Samuel Richardson, both really successful novelists, admired her work, called her a genius, uh, wanted to see her publishing. So that's interesting because she capitalized on these connections in the marketplace. She was publishing with one of the top publishers of the time, Miller, and also Payne. And she, that, yeah, that introduction, I wanted to highlight how, yes, she had these, these male literary connections, but she clearly was advocating for herself. We have lots of letters that show her um, soliciting publishers to consider her works, asking them not to sit on this text or that text too long because she wanted to be sure that it got published. So we don't have as much evidence of her female friendships. And that has been an interesting uh, point of conversation. You know, what was, what were her relationships with women like? 
We know that she was really admired by Mary Jones, that Frances Burney also admired her. Burney was a little bit, was younger, the next generation really. Um, she also was friends with Frances Sheridan, uh, a female author, but we have less, and it really goes back to uh, whose letters get kept and whose documents are preserved for time. And these women authors were not, their, their documents just weren't, weren't saved. So we don't have as much information. Frances Burney, who was in the next generation, had a, a literary, mm, a, a, people, a literary legacy, people who were saving her documents. So that helped. She also worked in the courts, which helped. But since Lennox rejected the courts, or was rejected by, we're not sure. Uh, she, we don't have as much information. We do know of a good friendship with um, Lady Clerk, who ended up being the godmother for Lennox's daughter. Another interesting part of her life is that she did not have children. She and Alexander did not have children until she was 35. So they have, uh, they were married for quite a long time. We, that, you know, one of those things we can't figure out exactly why that's the <laughs> case, but she had two children later and Alexander claimed them as his own. <laughs> uh, possibly she was not getting enough nutrients in the 1750s and early 60s because they were did not have enough money. Uh, and so when she became more successful, she published nearly one title every year in the 1750s. So as she gained in, in popularity and possibly income, she was eventually um, given a, a paid, well, she was offered a pension, uh, which would have helped her, uh, though she was worried that, it, she was possibly worried that it wouldn't last because the uh, political situation was in such flux. And so she negotiated, instead of the pension, a position for Alexander at Customs, which was a steady income. It's sort of in that period where they start to have children and seem a little more settled. She also publishes less, probably because she's taking care of her children. So those are some of the aspects of her personal life that are quite interesting and, and show the challenge of a woman who wants to be an author and needs to earn money and is not of great means. And, and that's something that I thought was reflected as well in the range of works. I mean, I, I was mentioning a few minutes ago how, how, you know, as I was reading the book about how it seemed, it was impressive, the, the, the breadth, the range of her works, but it also seemed that, that she was constantly looking for something that would really sell. And as you are, are, you've already alluded to, is that by the end of the 1750s, she's beginning to get into uh, writing plays. And I was wondering if you could perhaps get mm-hmm. into some of her uh, later works, not, not just the, the, the plays she started to write, but also she... Uh, mentioned as well the, the the periodical that she started and what it was that she was seeking to accomplish with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's kind of two um, avenues to go down. First, the the play. So as we remember, she was an actress, and she was probably banking on the fact that if she could get a successful play, basically that's three nights in a row. Um, that's when a playwright started to earn an income from a play. And you could earn a lot more money as a playwright if you had a successful play. That said, it was really difficult for women in the 
1750s, 1760s to get a play staged. So there weren't very many women who were successful in doing so. And Lennox was trying for the, in the 1760s and only succeeded in 1769. That's her first play, The Sister. And that play uh, had an incredibly successful life after life in publication, and people really liked it. And even later um, in the early 19th century, someone adapted it, and it was really successful. So it was thought to be a very good play. However, on the stage, its first in, on its first night, it was booed off the stage. And there's a big question about why. It's possible that she, because she was a critic of Shakespeare, there were enough people, men, who were unhappy with that. That and there was it was a planned booing. It was a planned hissing, and people threw things on the stage. And the actors and actresses had a hard time performing because. <laughs> It was so raucous. Uh, and it was not then ever performed again on stage. So that was very depressing and a really terrible turn for her. And so it took her a while to try again. Um, she did write two more plays. One was never staged. Uh, and then the last play in 1774 was called Old City Manners. And it had a successful 11 night 11 nights run over two seasons so she probably made um some significant money on that play but it took her until 1775 and when more women were becoming successful on the stage and when david garrick was no longer theater manager <laughs> so she got was you know had the advocate in george coleman who was another really well known um theater persona and manager. So the, you know, her plays uh, have gotten very little scholarly attention. In fact, none of them are in modern editions. So that is an area that really deserves a lot more attention um, in scholarship today. Uh, so those are plays. Oh, and um, her first play, The Sister, the one in 1769 was an, was, um, was derived from her novel, Henrietta, and it takes one section of the novel and turns it into this theatrical performance. It's hilarious. It's probably her funniest of all her works. Uh, on the stage, the female characters are the really smart ones, and the male characters are not managing to get their acts together, or they're scoundrels. So it's a really fun play, and it's it's you know, another reason why it may not have been so successful on the stage, but I think probably it had more to do with with the Shakespeare problem because so many people liked the play in when it was published. Um, okay, so then the Ladies Museum was her magazine, 1760-61. Uh, this was another venture that really made sense uh, in terms of the literary marketplace. In the 17th, the periodical was growing in popularity and in 1760-61, there was a rapid influx of new titles of periodicals. It seemed that people were beginning to recognize it as uh, it's really the new social media, right? It's access for more people to read short pieces, those, those especially those that are not as literate. Uh, um, this is a great format for the 
the middle class, that's a tricky word for the 18th century, but let's say those middle class uh, gentlemen who maybe didn't have as much of an education, but were interested in current events and some history and other things. Magazines were uh, purchased and in coffee houses and a part of the new social culture. And Lennox's Ladies Museum is similar to some some of the the magazines of the time. It was a eleven run, uh, had eleven issues. Uh, it she called it a, a female what it's not was it a course in female education. So it was in advertised in fact in in other magazines as a, a course in female education, a way to educate readers. Uh, and it's interesting, female readers, we know that men read these magazines that, all, that had the word lady in the title. So um, we also have some evidence in the magazine that the writers were imagining that the readers were men. Still, it's interesting that Lennox wanted to advertise it that way, or maybe the booksellers wanted to advertise it as a course in female education. The Ladies Museum was the third English magazine edited by women, advertised for women. And so it's a remarkable uh, work in itself because we start to see how women were represented by women and how women were encouraged to think and live. Uh, And so the Ladies Museum has a wide range of kinds of texts which uh, makes it uh, especially interesting because it gives us a sense of the kinds of things that Lennox was imagining that people, women, might be interested in that they hadn't been get granted access to in wide ways before. So, you know, it's, it has natural history, in other words, science topics. Um, she has, a, she has a, a work, like a, a serial column called The Ladies' Geography, and another serial column called The Philosophy for the Ladies. Um, it has some history in it. Um, so, for example, there's a serial or installments called An Essay on the Original Inhabitants of Great Britain. Um, there's another translation um, of a French text of the studies proper for women. So, it's Lennox is this magazine, the latest museum is is exploring what topics uh, can be offered to women, and it's framed around uh, this column called the Trifler, so sort of the Dear Abby of the 18th century. You know, the column where we have a persona, and in this case, the Trifler, who it's pretty clear is Charlotte Lennox, uh, discussing what content women should be thinking about and what they um, should be allowed to to think about. She also, in those columns, introduces letters from her readers who are um, debating with one another about what women should, how women should behave, but also what women should think about. So it's quite a fascinating feminist magazine, in fact. And uh, that magazine, unfortunately, is also not in a modern edition. So we are yet only able to study, we are only able to study it in rare book libraries or through microfilm or, you know, digital collections. I could keep going, but perhaps (laughs) you'd have a few questions. (laughs) Uh, Because 
I was wondering, we're getting to a point now where we're talking about Lennox in her early 30s. She's had, she has a, a considerable stature. She has published his works. And it seems that she's still struggling to make, uh, you know, make it a success of it. And you, and you explain in your book that this is hardly unique to her or even to women authors. You point out how Samuel Johnson, who is a name that is, is so you know, commonly known today, did not, you know, live large as as a writer. That he also had had his own financial struggles throughout his career, even with his most successful public publications. Did how was she attempting to? Uh, was she att- how was she attempting to accommodate the market with these various things? And how was she attempting to secure a livelihood? Uh, you know, as a supplement. You've already mentioned, for example, how she tried to secure a position for her husband. Uh, did, was that a uh, successful long term or did she uh, have to go back and pick up the pen yet again uh, to uh, continue to try to earn income? Yeah, so that's also an interesting question. You know, how much of you know her picking up the pen had to do with money and how much of it had to do with her interest in writing stories or in getting information out to to her readers or, you know, enjoying entertaining people. Uh, she writes about how she likes this work at some points. And at other points, she writes about how she is a slave to the booksellers. So um, she does pick up her pen again, even when he has secured this work. And so we know that, you know, it wasn't just about money. Uh, But I can say that throughout her whole life, they never seem to be really, really comfortable for any long period of time. Alexander was in the customs for a number of years, but at some point he left and he, at another point, a little bit further on, it's very hard to tell the exact dates, he decided that the best, or he decided to go to Scotland and try to claim his inheritance in a royal lineage of the Lennox line. He believed that he should have been, uh, had a right to that. And so he went to Scotland in hopes of securing that, probably for for the family. Um, That did not succeed. Uh, We don't know the details of why, but he, uh, you know, we just don't know. And uh, I, I, I possibly am a little too generous to Alexander uh, because he does seem to have caused her more trouble than he helped her. <laughs> uh, their son, uh, he was, oh, oh, that's that's another part of the story that's super interesting. She enlisted her son as an author and helped him publish in magazines in the 1780s, maybe thinking that he could earn more money as a young, as a child author in the magazines. Uh, or maybe she was trying to get him on a better path because he seemed to be always getting himself into trouble. <laughs> so she was uh, constantly, oh, there's several letters in which she talks about him being a noisy little boy or a distraction when Samuel Johnson comes over. Uh, and then later in his life, she there's a letter in which she writes about how concerned she is because he seems to be getting himself into some serious trouble. So she is constantly, basically she's a hustler, right? She's constantly trying to figure out how to uh, appeal to the market, write something interesting, 
make enough money, keep their family together. She sometimes, as I mentioned, was a tutor. At one point, she was a tutor to Samuel Welch's daughters. Samuel Welch, Welch was a magistrate, and they seemed to have a good, a good friendship. And his daughters were, one of them was, was quite mm, advanced intellectually and wanted to learn. And Lennox seemed to be a really good fit for her in trying to help her learn. So, but Lennox wasn't naturally a teacher. It seems like that only lasted a short, a short amount of time. Uh, so yes, she was constantly trying to figure out a, a way forward for all of them. Eventually, Alexander came back without having secured, you know, a uh, any real real money, you know, through this inheritance. And uh, in around that time, he died. We don't know how. We don't exactly know why. Uh, and I'm trying to remember the the date, the timeline. But her daughter also died uh, around the age of 16. So that those are just tragedies in her life that are she was inconsolable. There's even some poems she wrote that that uh, reflect on these these the sadness of her daughter specifically her daughter's death. So it's she and her son. She's trying to you know <laughs> make a way for her son who it sounds like was quite a challenge. And eventually, she uses her clout with the Royal Literary Fund to um, secure his passage to America, probably to get him away from whatever trouble he was in. And she is actually the first woman to uh, secure money from the the early, you know, the the beginnings of the Royal Literary Fund, uh, because they recognized her as an excellent, as a good author who was highly respected. People called her a genius throughout her lifetime. They called her the English Sappho at other points. So she, you know, this this is, you know, into the 1790s. Uh, so so as a result of her reputation and her need, they secured his passage to America. So by the 17 early 1790s, she is alone in London. She has published her last work in Euphemia, which also is set in America and is the story of a woman now married and having to negotiate a really difficult husband, which is, you know, probably paralleling her own life. Uh, And that novel is fascinating for the way it represents Native Americans. Uh, and the way it represents, and so her daughter, her son in the novel, Euphemia's son, is captured by Native Americans and is taken care of uh, and treated very well and given a good education. Interestingly enough, because they have been educated by Jesuits, so she's reflecting on the these colonial issues, um, not always in super insightful ways in the sense that she's sometimes quite, she shows her character to be quite afraid of the Native Americans, but in other moments, she shows the relationship between this character, Euphemia, and the Hurons to be a, a one, of, one of respect. Um, well, so I was actually thinking about how that novel yeah. and, and, and uh, her first novel, uh, Harriet Stewart, 
how you make this point in the book that I, I thought was really fascinating and, and to a degree it reflects my, my you know, limitations, my knowledge of, of literature. But you say how, you know, that is an example of how she really deserves a considerable degree of credit to being, even before we talk about James Fenimore Stewart as being, you know, as being a, a, a creator or a, of the the frontier novel, how she's you know talking about mm-hmm. a genre that really didn't exist before her, and 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 mm-hmm. how she really established a lot of patterns we come to recognize later on. Yes, that's right. I forgot to mention that. And Harry, yeah, and Harry Stewart. Um, some have called that the first American novel <laughs> uh, because it's the first in 1750. It's set in America. Uh, others would say that because she uh, is not American. She, it can't be considered the first American novel, but it does reflect these early colonial times, you know, 1740s. Um, I was yeah, so could, that... I was trying to speak a bit sure. then uh, more broadly to uh, her literary legacy, because we we, we could talk about the, these contributions that, that she makes to literature in terms of being an American novelist, and in terms of helping to, you know, develop a, a genre that didn't really exist before then. You also mentioned how uh, Jane Austen admired her works. What was Charlotte Lennox's literary legacy? How did she shape uh, not just English literature, but English language literature in, in the decades that, that, that followed her death? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so first, uh, Austen, the novel that we know for sure Austen read with her sister many times was The Female Quixote. So yes, Austen really loved her. And, and I actually think that Austen probably read uh, Harriet Stewart, or sorry, Henrietta as well, because that is a sister novel in which we have uh, opposing personalities of sisters, just like we see in Sense and Sensibility uh, in in Henrietta. So yeah, that's the. Uh, I think there's a lot of influence on Austen. In fact, Emma has has tri- has ways that we see Lennox too. But uh, yeah, uh, Shakespeare Illustrated, as I mentioned already, has a long life afterwards in, you know, people referencing it as important to the criticism of Shakespeare. Um, The Memoirs of the Duke of Sully, which was one of her translations, uh, is a very um, important French text that Lennox translates for the first time. uh, And that text is uh, her translation, Lennox's translation, is still uh, being used in in the seven, in the 1950s. So Lennox uh, also was featured in Erasmus Darwin's The Plan for the Conduct of Female Education. He notes that authors like Lennox are an example of why women should be educated. Uh, and uh, the female quicksit story is taken. Uh, as a plot, a plot device for many other novels, including the female quixotism, that's 1801, and um, oh, a Mariah Edgeworth Angelina, 1801, uh, another novel called um, mm, oh, sorry, the heroine or Adventures of Cherubina in 1813. These are all female Quixotes or female Quixotes. Uh, and we are just, it, over and over, I see Lennox in the magazines throughout the period. That was part of my research was going back to magazines to see just how inf- how much she appeared uh, to a, a, just an average reader, you know, not necessarily this uh, specifically 
uh, elite literary world, but to most readers. Uh, and her name is everywhere. So it's, you know, she definitely was a literary celebrity into the 19th century. Um, and, and then also just, oh, sorry. No, so, and yet, I'm struck by the fact that you, you describe this celebrity, I mean, you talk about this influence, and yet today it, it, her works are not quite as accessible <laughs> as those of, say, a Jane Austen. If, if a reader today wanted to uh, read the works of Charlotte Lennox, uh, to what editions would you steer them? Yeah, so right now in modern edition are five of her six novels. So if you went to Amazon and typed in Charlotte Lennox, you would be able to get access to her novels. Perhaps Harriet Stewart right now is not in print, but it was produced in a modern edition. And I know there are rare, uh, there are secondhand books, uh, secondhand copies of that book. But uh, yeah, what what happened in the 1990s and the early 2000s is that when women began to be recovered, the genre of the novel was also being studied and was probably, you know, it's the most popular thing in terms of scholarship, in terms of the way we were thinking about literature of the 18th century. And, and women are associated with novels. So Lennox got associated with being a novelist, and those are what we have in modern edition. What we really need, and you're absolutely right, is a collected works of Charlotte Lennox that would give readers a flavor for Shakespeare Illustrated, the Greek theater, of Father Brumoy, the Ladies Museum. Yeah, the plays, her poetry. So all of that is not a modern edition, and that is actually the work that needs to be done. I, I edited Henrietta because I knew that in if her works are not a modern edition, it makes it much harder for people to to see her value, of course, right? Well, then so you, you know my next question is, done. which is, <laughs> is that your next project? <laughs> well, I am a torn right now because, yes, I think that that would be great to get a, a you know, an original works or, a, you know, a, a collected works of Lennox out there. I am not working on that at the present because I've gotten um, quite interested in her her magazine and the way mag women were represented in magazines in the 18th century. And so I uh, currently am working on a project that will highlight the way women are represented outside the home in these, in this genre that was influencing such a wide populace uh, in the 18th century. So that's, that's currently what I am I'm the path of scholarship that I'm following, but I have been talking to lots of, of other scholars about how this needs to be done. And there are, there's a growing interest in Lennox. So I wouldn't be surprised if either I or someone else ends up doing it. I would be happy if someone else did. There's more work to do on <laughs> Lennox than I could do in all in 20 lifetimes. I, while I was writing this book, I was creating a list of research projects for other people because I already recognize that. You know, there's just so much great work and uh, original research that needs to be done that will definitely enrich our period and really take down some of the the common beliefs about this period and about how women, there's been the kind of general belief that women were constrained and they weren't able to have much agency. But I mean, these 500 pages of my biography, I think, show that Lennox had a tremendous amount of agency Though she might not have been successful financially, 
she was extremely successful as an author. And I think those things need to be separated because in the 18th century, as we've now repeated several times, you weren't necessarily going to make a lot of money because of the way the structures, financial structures worked. But as an excellent, as an outstanding author with um, great influence on the minds of English readers, Scottish readers, Irish readers, uh, you you were a success. So Lennox is definitely that person. Um, there's no doubt about that. Well, I really thank you for the opportunity to speak with us today to talk a bit about that success and the impact that her works had upon uh, modern literature. Uh, Susan Carlisle, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. Thank Have you. A day. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 